You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. We're the show that tries to take your leadership challenge and break it down into bite-sized chunks that you might find some inspiration and easier ideas for you to become a, a more effective leader. And today, my guest is a gentleman who himself has had good corporate experience, is now involved in coaching others to do the same. His name is Gerardo Sagat. Did I say that right, Gerardo Sagat? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, tried practicing and wanted to be sure, but uh, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for the invitation and uh, hi, everyone. It's a bit of a tradition here, uh, Gerardo, to um, uh, give us a little bit of your journey, your, your backstory on all your experience to get you to this station in life. And I know we, we don't have long to go, so it'll have to be the flyover, but uh, tell us what that is. Uh, well, I've been one of those people who has taken uh, a path that did not belong to me, and that's because of life events. Uh, I lost my dad when I was six and my mom when I was 15. So I started living by myself, earning my money when I was 15 years old with wow. my older my older brother. And uh, so, you know, what I actually had, I had something in my blood, which is entrepreneur, because my dad was an entrepreneur. And uh, uh, because of a difficult youth, I wanted to be a successful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So to me, success meant, uh, you know, setting up a big business, uh, lots of offices, lots of people, lots of money, all of that. So, you know, during my studies, I had a chance. I grew up in Italy, uh, studied at the business schools in Milan, and then uh, uh, spent a year in Paris. And there I fell in love with international tax. So um, uh, I moved to London, started my career there, working for one of the big firms. And at uh, 29, I started my own small business in a service office with a, with one assistant and that uh you know small business then with the years became a 400 people operation with 10 offices around the world uh multi-family office uh asset management tax trust etc um so in the year 2016 i kind of had the feeling that i uh you know did what i had to do what i had initially, you know, uh, thought. Uh, and so, you know, I found myself there and said, okay, now, uh, you know, felt a little bit, you know, this not a bit, a bit lost in the sense, said, okay, what's next, you know? Um, and and so I, I exited my business and um, requalified as a, as a coach. I kind of liked uh, the idea of, uh, uh, you know, whatever I've learned in the years to uh, so that it would be useful for somebody else and started as a coach requalified and uh, and you know I thought okay I'm going to use the coaching skill uh, to humanize leaders and organizations so 
I love learning by creating, and therefore I created a coaching program. I created a format of interview. I created a format of board decisional debate. Uh, you know, I created a postgraduate training program, and uh, you know, my last creation is a a live performing arts show that combines performing arts with coaching. Oh, That's wow. my my journey. <laughs> in a, in a nutshell. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd love to see that. That's uh, quite creative. And I guess what struck me, Gerardo, as you were describing that is it's that entrepreneur blood. It never went away, even though you you kind of exited the uh, bigger business that you had built. <clears throat> you still had that energy to to build and create and, and, and do things. So it, it was it sounds like it was transformed into that effort around coaching ideas and uh, but the entrepreneurial energy and drive never, never really went away. It never changed. So, um, uh, well, well, talk a little bit more about some of your programs, sort of the, I'll call it framework and philosophy behind the, the, the various programs. Uh, the, well, I thought, uh, you know, I, I kind of, when I started the coaching, uh, uh, activity, uh, I, I kind of always perceived this as, uh, you know, coaching more as a tool than as, you know, as an end in itself. So, um, and in the years I have been, you know, using coaching skills in different kind of scenario, different ways. So the way that I've created, uh, you know, because I am creative, so I used up this skill to say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to use the coaching, but I always with a kind of powerful idea behind. Okay. Uh, so in the program that I created, uh, you know, there's a speech that I do about vulnerability to board of directors. Uh, there is a format of team meeting that focuses on emotions. Uh, you know, there are various different things. There are motto that I create for, you know, uh, either a product or a team or a company. Uh, there are different kind of things. There's also a, a model of interaction with clients uh, to bring, you know, out emotions from clients. So I kind of uh, put together uh, the coaching methodology with a powerful idea uh, so to create impact in the organization. You know, you uh, you use the word emotion in there, and, and there are those that in, in corporate leadership in particular that, that kind of recoil when you start talking about emotion. But there's also those that are embracing it more in the spirit of what is now popularly thought of as holistic coaching. I mean, we're we're learning the hard way that we ourselves as leaders and those around us that we have responsibility for, when they show up at work, guess what? They're a human being. They're a whole human being that has many, many things going on, both, you know, work-related and personal-related. And there's been a lot of shift that has been spoken about since the pandemic. And I want to ask you, just, you know, in an unscientific way, what are some of your observations about things that have changed in the work world since we've come out of the pandemic? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. I, over the past decade, I've been a member of uh, YPO, 
uh, young president organization. Uh, it's the world's largest community of leaders and CEO. 30,000 um, plus uh, members in 140 countries, all CEOs of companies. And, uh, you know, if you look at number one reason for membership, uh, it's what is called in YPO forum. Forum is a meeting where, um, you know, seven, eight, nine CEO meet on a regular basis and they update each other on some key professional and personal areas, uh, you know, sharing emotions and being themselves. Okay. That's the biggest change that is happening. Okay. Number one reason for membership in the largest community of CEOs in the world is uh, sharing emotions and being themselves, uh, taking away the mask uh, and be the true self. So that is to say, this is where the world is going now. Uh, and the more, uh, you know, if we're looking in the future with AI, um, I think that that's going to be the way forward even more. And, you know, building skills such as awareness, self-awareness, things like this are very, very, very important. You know, that strikes me interesting because um, I, I thought of a, an event that happened uh, before the pandemic, but it speaks to this same thing. And that is, uh, I'm familiar, there's a very large oil and gas headquarters near me. I, I live in the Houston area, so obviously we've got a lot of energy-related companies. But I was doing some coaching work with one of them, and um, they had done a corporate-wide employee engagement survey, and one of the top requests that people expressed was, I wish my boss was more relatable, you know, and, and translated more human, more, more able to connect. And it's interesting to me, and these are my words, nobody else's. Uh, I think in that particular environment at the time, the corporate culture was pretty rigid. It was a little bit old school command and control. People moved up the ranks and assumed a persona of the guy before them because that seemed to indicate success. If you acted like George and George is now retired, you're you're probably going to be successful like George was. Well, you know, the the survey at all levels of the organization, and this is the other interesting fact, it wasn't just limited to the top of the house, but at basically all levels of the organization, people were saying, I wish my boss was more relatable. So even middle managers were saying, I wish my boss was more relatable. Senior executives were saying, I wish the CEO was more relatable, so on and so on. So it it does invoke that need for human interaction. And what I'm hearing you say now to know that the president's organization is acknowledging that and and now looking for ways to, to be more personal and... Well, it, it's... Uh, I mean, this has been going on for years in YPO, but, you know, to say this, uh, deep authenticity is much more available than what you would normally think. Okay. If you think about being authentic, there is a an element of fear. Okay. Right. That element of fear 
is you know, I ask different ways, uh, you know, what happens if I show myself, if I show my weaknesses, if I, you know, if I'm vulnerable, what's going to happen to my position, to my career, uh, are people going to judge me, okay, uh, that's, uh, that's normal, but, you know, I've experienced board meetings, virtual events, where people have you know, share that their most intimate fragilities just after half an hour. And, it, you know, everybody is just waiting to find themselves in a scenario where they can be themselves. Everybody, everybody, you know, bottom, up, top, wherever you think about, okay? Now, this the so the key is create that safe space. And the way to do that is example, leading by example, because authenticity is contagious. So if I see somebody, and preferably somebody above me, being authentic and vulnerable, then somehow, you know, I say to myself, okay, then that's okay to be like that. So that's why it is very important that leaders at the top give that example. Because once they give that example, then, you know, uh, all the way in the organization, people will open up. And if they open up, there is more openness, more cohesion, more sense of belonging, more trust, and therefore more performance and better performance. Yeah. I'm, I'm as you were describing that, I'm reminded of... Um... You know, there's a popular TV series, at least here in the U.S., I don't know how it stands worldwide, uh, called NCIS. And Mark Harmon is the central figure. His character name is Leroy Gibbs. He's a, he's a criminal investigator. And one of Gibbs's persona elements is that he's got this list of rules to live by. And one of his rules is never apologize. And I, I've heard him say that on the show several times. And I, I think about my own leadership coaching and it's like, why would you not apologize to somebody when you made a mistake? You know, when, when there's an obvious, it's easy for everybody to see there was a mistake. You, you made the decision. You, it was a bad one. It was a mistake. Why not own it and apologize for it? You know, so it, it, it strikes me as funny. I'll, I know this is just a TV show, but it, what I fear is, you know, culturally people embrace ideas like that, that they see in movies and TV and they go, well, that's what I need to do. That's, that's how I need to be. And it's like, no, you don't. <laughs> well, uh, from my experience, uh, you know, during my show, one of the things that happens, there are, there are interactions. Okay. One of the interaction is people write apology an apology note to somebody else in the in the room, okay? And then at the end of the show, they, they exchange those apology notes, okay? Um, you know, apology is amending, okay? So if you look, you know, everybody has fears. Everybody has harmful defensive behaviors. It's normal, you know, uh, wearing masks, uh, blaming, ignoring, uh, postponing, destroying, uh, you know, all of these from uh, a loud discussion in the office to, uh, to pushing a button to launch a missile, okay? 
you know, we all have different levels, these things. These are harmful defensive behavior from fears, okay? Now, it's okay to, you know, be aware of it. It's okay to accept. It's okay also to look what to do to change, okay? But one of the most powerful things is when you remedy whatever you've done before that has created harm, okay? It has an incredible power in unlocking creativity in finding, you know, what is the solution? What's next? What, how different you want to be, okay? And, you know, when people experience apology, they just have an amazing, uh, you know, human experience, amazing. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as as the psychologists tell us, obviously, when you deliver an apology, you have to be sincere and genuine about it. You you most everybody has a pretty good meter that says, no, this is not real. This you, you don't mean that, you know, um, so the, a leader has to be careful in how they're doing it. It, it has to be genuine and real uh, for it to resonate with everybody. And. I think you raise a good point, though. Often it's that element of fear that keeps leaders from being willing to do that. You know, and whatever they've been told or whatever they believe, you know, being vulnerable, being open, stating an apology, it makes me look weak and that's a problem and I'm supposed to be strong in this position I'm in and, you know, I can't show weakness. Well, I would argue that you know, the word is manning up, I think, in the popular word, but obviously that's sexist and, and not appropriate in today's world. But if you own it, if whether you're man or a woman in, in the workplace, if you own the problem, admit to others that you might have had a hand or at least that you're going to take responsibility, I think that really improves that whole notion of uh relatability and vulnerability that I think people are looking for in their leaders. Yes, there's also an element that this is what you would expect and you would prefer from any of your employees to right. do, it, you know. So, right. uh, uh, you know, one of the things a leader should have is really, you know, you should lead by example. So if you want a, that kind of behavior from your people, you should be the first one to have it. So, and, and give it the example. So, uh, let's also... So let me ask you, I want to turn the page a little bit. If Let's go back to your, your company that you built up to 400 employees. Where along the way did you start thinking about the culture you wanted to have at that company? Day one. <laughs> they want, I, you know, to be honest, I didn't even think about, uh, okay, when do I want to start having a culture? I built it from the first day I entered a small service office in New Oxford Street in London with my assistant. And, you know, that day I started building the culture, you know, and then people, uh, you know, got in and just, you know, follow that culture. And that was key, sorry, that was key, key for, you know, the growth of, of the group. 
I, I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs who actually they're investors who are buying existing businesses. And so on day one, they've inherited a culture from the, the, the party that was selling the business. And, you know, they all always come in with their own view of what the culture should be that they want. And they try during the negotiation of the sale to determine whether or not the company is close to the culture that they're already trying to build. Um, but obviously sometimes that's doesn't always work. Often those cultures are very dominated by the founder owner of the company, the guy who's selling the business. What, what do you think someone in that scenario can do on day one to start changing culture to be the business they really want it to be? Well, I think, uh, I think, uh, the first thing they should do is number one, not only focus on the people, the employees, okay, but actually look at all the stakeholders, okay, because uh, you know, I'm saying you know, if you want to uh, put human connection and authenticity at the center of uh, you know the company. Uh, nowadays, you have to look at all stakeholders and then just simply analyze, you know, from the smallest uh, event, procedure, process in the company, how you can make it human, you know, just find a way you can make it human. Even, you know, you know the first example I can give you is... Um, uh, say the board reporting, you know, say the CEO prepares a reporting that goes to the board to discuss it, you know. Uh, yes, figures, okay, but what's the order of the things that you're going to, how you're going to list the things, okay? Number one, HR, human resources, not at the end, you know. So that there are small things that you can actually uh, do um and uh, and look when you want to do that um there's a book you know on this specific topic there's a book that i like to recommend uh, and it's called the art of business and it's written by a guy called hubert jolie is a frenchman who was um called as a ceo uh, about 10 years ago of a, a group called Best Buy, a large mm -hmm. consumer US group. Okay, mm -hmm. About 10 years ago, Best Buy was almost bankrupt. This guy was called to become the CEO and he decided to put human connection at the center okay, of the company in all different uh, you know, suppliers, shareholders, communities, employees, and so on. Um, the book is very interesting because it also lists different things that, you know, the guy has implemented in the company to place human connection at the center. Okay. Uh, and, you know, the end result of this was stock price multiplied by 11. It's one of the most famous uh, turnaround in business history that is even taught in business schools. So, uh, you know, in that book, it's, it's a good reference 
because it lists all the different things that is done all around the company. And and that would be a good example of a culture that already existed. And he came in as CEO and and actually senior leaders everywhere are challenged by that. And it happens in the bigger companies. People get moved around and they inherit teams of people that are already working together and they are now designated as the manager of that unit or division, whatever. And um, you, you may find as a new leader in an, a situation like that, that the culture you inherit is not necessarily on in line with what you would like it to be. It may not even be in line with what the company says it's supposed to be. You know, because it's a it's a remote office or a remote branch or a, a separate division or something like that, and they have ways of kind of creating their own cultures. Well, if the the kind of culture that you want to create in the company is human centered, that you know, um, as such a uh, so that is so powerful that you know it can be changed uh, dramatically and very quickly uh, i will uh, want to give you an example of something that happened you know i, I was recently um, giving one of that speech about vulnerability uh, to a large bank in london to the board of a large bank in london and um, there were also three other boards uh, connected via Zoom. Okay, so I entered the room, and you know there was the IT guy saying hello, and then at at a specific time, board members joined the meeting. Okay, so they entered the room. They didn't even say you know come to me and say hello. You know, they just entered the room, take their seat. They were talking to each other. They didn't even know the reason why they were there. Okay, then the meeting started. So the first half an hour, I talk about vulnerability, what are the effects, uh, you know, uh, individually for the group, the performance, etc. And then the, the the other half an hour, it's actually, you know, it's action. Okay, so I share my most intimate fragility, and I ask the other board members to share theirs. Okay, in um, you know, writing a note on a post-it note, you know, the things they wrote are incredible. You know, um, sexual violence. Uh, uh, you know, psychological uh, dis uh, disorders, and you know, people were crying, hugging each other. The CEO, after two days, wrote me an email to say, you know, thank you. We're going to change things in the in the bank so that you know people who are here feel free to share their weaknesses. So this is just to say that that kind of culture is extremely powerful simply because, you know, number one, it is contagious. Number two, everybody just wants, is looking for, uh, you know, findings themselves or putting themselves in spaces where they can be the true self. I think that's powerful and congratulations on that kind of transformation just in a, you know, one session with a group. It It is powerful and it is amazing. Where, where do you think 
in, in, in a more typical arrangement where you're maybe brought in as a coach for a leadership team, what is the usual process to get them on board for being able to be more vulnerable, more uh, human about, and, and a little more holistic about who they are and how they're showing up? What is the process usually like? I think, uh, well, first of all, is uh, you need to gain trust from them. And the best way to do it is, as I said before, be vulnerable. Okay? So, yeah. so it is myself being vulnerable. Mm. This, you know, already unlocks a lot. Okay. Uh, there are times, obviously, that, you know, people are, in, you know, made in different ways, no? So there are people who don't feel so comfortable. But hang on, you know, they will say to you, I'm sorry, I can't do this right now. And, you know, the fact that they are saying this, it's even more powerful than simply, you know, simply saying it because the, you know they are having problems they cannot make it and they say this and they open up so they think that they don't share vulnerability but in fact they are sharing it okay right and right. and that's just so when this happens the second very important so give the example second thing is don't judge okay right. don't judge just stay there okay whatever comes it's okay. And if you don't judge, maybe some people will feel reluctant at the beginning, but they see others doing it. And they see that nothing happens. And they see that they feel better afterwards. So you do it a second time, they will do more. And then, they, you know, and then everything will fall. You know, uh, everything you're saying there reminds me of the... Um, famous study that was done by Google. It was actually released in 2018. Um, uh, the title of it was Project Aristotle, and that's where they did a study of their high-performing teams. And that's where they really enforce the idea of psychological safety in the workplace. And, and that's that show up as, as real as you are and for the for the environment to be psychologically safe it means there is no judgment there's no condemnation there's no um, you know no no pressure on saying that but it's just accepted as truth and it's you know if you're able to speak your mind and speak your peace and have it be heard and fairly, accumulated in the in the process that you're going through people feel psychologically safe you know i know i can share my idea i know i can share my thought nobody's going to judge me nobody's going to shut me down and those teams routinely performed at much higher levels than any of the other teams where there was a more autocratic judgmental kind of spirit going on and um you know, I, I think that speaks volumes to, I'm partly back to the culture idea, for leaders to try to create in their culture that notion of psychological safety and, you know, kind of talk about it as a rule of the road. You know, when you're bringing a team together, maybe have a discussion in the very first meeting about how do we want to operate as a team? 
can we agree that we're going to create psychological safety for one another? Can we agree that we want to be open to share and, and be real and be authentic about how we're showing up? And when we do that, again, there is no judgment, no penalty for saying so. And I'm, I'm reminded of a, uh, another story from my oil and gas experience. I was doing a, a work with a large team, and we had done a survey assessment of the team, and it was a classic four-blocker result sheet that plotted out some things. And the majority of the whole team was in the upper right quadrant, which is kind of where you would like everybody to be. But there was one guy that was way off on the other in the other direction. And before we had the meeting, I was talking to the team leader and he said, I think I know who this guy is. And I said, all right, stop right there. It doesn't matter who that guy is. You need to allow that guy to be that guy, whoever it is. And you don't, I'm hearing you say you kind of go on a witch hunt. You want to fix him and pull him into the other group. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, let him be him. And he pondered that a minute, and then it was time to go ha actually have the team meeting. And the first thing that happened at the team meeting, the guy stood up and said, I know all of us have read this book. I want to declare right now I'm that guy. <laughs> he said, I know I'm the guy. And he said, now that I see it graphically, I humbly submit my resignation. I'm going to hold this team back. And I, I see... And I feel it. I know it every time we have a meeting. I, I, I know I'm the outlier. I, I know I'm the guy that's always contrarian. And he said, I don't want to stifle, you know, this team's performance. And to the man, everybody else on the team said, absolutely not. We need you on this team. We need your contrarian ideas. You help level us out. You help pull us back where we need to be when we start running running off in another direction. <clears throat> it was a very, very powerful moment for that whole organization. Yeah. That's, you know, what happens. Uh, the, the magic that happens when you're able to be, to create uh, spaces where, you know, people can be who they truly are. Right, right. And it, it was that moment of authenticity. And ironically, one of the one of the reasons I was there and, and one of the big agenda items we had at that meeting that day, we wanted to revisit the team charter and the team contract on how the team was going to work together going forward. There had been a major reorganization, some roles had been redefined, etc. So it, it was kind of a reset point, and the, the leader had asked me to come in and help coach the team through that exercise. And uh, at one point, I was describing the concept of what a team contract was per Patrick Lencioni's work. And um, one of the guys on the team said, we don't need that. We, we know each other. We know how we operate. We don't need to put all that on paper. And a lady sitting next to him said, I disagree. We don't know this about each other. We don't know how we think about certain things. And Doug's raising some very challenging points that we haven't explored as a team yet. We need to, we need to have that talk. We need to have, go through those things. So we did. We spent you know, the rest of the day mapping this out, putting it all down, and 
toward the end of the day, the gentleman said to the lady, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry. I assumed I, I, I see now how wrong I was about that. And uh, this has been powerful. It's been very meaningful to me and I'm glad we did it. Hmm. So again, it's those, I guess I go back to the idea and I love your point as a leader, you have to model the behavior. You have to demonstrate to others the value that you want to represent. And if it's, if it's being human, vulnerable, relatable, you have to show them what that looks like. Yes. Even, you know, uh, there are then many, uh, if you're looking to create that, there are many different, uh, small actions that make a dif big difference. Uh, you know, I have many that I've experienced, uh, uh, you know, even for example, uh, you know, if you're trying to put people in discomfort because, you know, opening up, sharing fears, vulnerabilities, emotions, you know, it's discomfort. Okay. Uh, and you're going to have to find a way to, uh, to make these people say, okay, well, not really these people, but the mind of these people to say, you know, I've got these defensive barriers, but I don't need them. So I'm going to let them down, no? Lower the walls, yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, just uh, uh, preempting that what you're trying to do, why you will try to do this and why you're going to ask maybe people to share this, what is the objective, what you're trying to build, you know, and, and saying this before doing it, you know, uh, it's even, a, you know, a tiny thing. Uh, it's a tiny action that can make a big difference on certain people because then, you know, people will know, they know what's going to come. They know what is the objective and the reason. And, you know, they feel more comfortable in doing it. Uh, or even, you know, the way that you have a meeting. You know, just imagine that most of the meetings we have are around the table. Okay. Just take the table out and have a meeting with no table in the middle. You know, somehow the table... It's you symbolic, know, defensive, it designing, you know, yeah. if you take it out and just have a meeting with nothing in the middle, you know, you will see people behaving in a completely different way. That's interesting. You know, those are some very small you know, examples of small, uh, you know, actions, but they can have a significant effect. Right. I love that. I love that idea. And I, as you were describing that, I'm thinking about a, another uh, workshop I was able to be part of. And uh, a, a colleague of mine and I were tasked with putting this thing on. And when we got to the venue, they had it all set up with tables and chairs and things, classic sort of almost classroom style seating. And my partner said, no, we're not going to do this. And she went to the facilities guy and she said, do you have a bunch of easy chairs and sofas you can swap out here? So we made it look like a living room and um, people came in and they kind of went, what, you know, what is this? And 
um, it, it was actually done quite nicely and, and, uh, you know, people got real comfortable and real, you know, vulnerable real quick. And it was, um, it was really interesting to watch that dynamic. So to your point, you know, we got rid of the sterile classroom look of the thing, made it more like just a nice living area and people just really gravitated and the discussions were really really meaningful. So, well, I'll tell you what, we're about up on time, Gerardo. Thank you so much for sitting in and being part of this. Tell people the easiest way to find you or get a hold of you if they're interested in knowing more. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. So it's linkedin.com slash in slash Gerardo Segat, or they can visit my website, uh, gerardosegat.com. Wonderful. Well, as always, folks, we will have those links for connecting with Gerardo in the show notes. So just hop down on any of our postings and you should be able to see those links. And uh, that's a point I want to remind everybody that if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video version of this episode over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, check out the archives. And leave me a note or a comment about ideas you may have for a, a topic for another show or a guest recommendation. Would love to hear from you and get that baked into our schedule. And before we go, one last time, Gerardo, again, thank you, my friend, for, for joining and really appreciate your work. Thank you, Doug. And hello, everyone. Merry Christmas. Ah, yes. Merry Christmas. We, we will be doing that very, very soon. So um, with that, folks, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, go out there, make it a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.